Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic. Joined, as always, by Ann Thompson, our editor-at-large, who's way out in Palm Springs, hanging out in the desert. We'll get into why you're out there in a little bit. But first, let's start with something a little bit more familiar, which is another Toy Story movie. There's been a lot of sequels and other kinds of franchise happenings of late, which is its own thing. But obviously, a Toy Story movie is a class of its own. So let's get into it, because we've seen this movie. It's, no surprise, a pretty good Toy Story movie. I wouldn't say it's the best Toy Story movie, but I will say that what I appreciated about it is that without spoiling too much, it really felt like there was this need to do something that justifies another entry and they really did it. So that was gratifying to me, as is the technology of the film and the sense that every Pixar movie needs to prove itself on some level and just the the pure kind of polish of this film, the way everything moves, looking just so absorbing and yet not out of sync with the Toy Story universe was really gratifying. I think maybe you liked it even more than I did. Well, um, those of you who know me um, know that I'm a Pixar fan. I mean, I was, I visited the, when I worked at Entertainment Weekly, I did a story on the original Toy Story and visited their um, campus back in the day in Richmond, California, in the Bay Area. And you know, walk down the halls with bicycles and toys in all of their uh, cubicles and got a tour from Pete Doctor. Back then, he was still there. He was he was on the first uh, Toy Story. He was their, like, lead animator back then. He's now running all of Pixar. And, you know, John Lasseter was very much in charge for a long time until he um, uh, misbehaved and, and moved on. And now we have uh, Pete Doctor running Pixar. And so the big question you're right. The big question, how could you possibly top Toy Story 3? And they, and I really wondered how they could do as well, because that's one of the best animated movies ever made, <laughs> written by Michael Arndt. Yeah, it, is, it is. It is. It is. Because what they do, what, what I think all screenwriters recognize, and believe it or not, um, Chernobyl uh, showrunner, creator, Craig Mazin, spends um, a good deal of one podcast, which I recommend to anybody who ever wants to write screenplays. It's on the Script Notes podcast that he and John August do together. And, um, it, and any screenwriter should, should uh, you know, subscribe to that. But this particular one was used <laughs> uh, the, the Pixar movies and uh, Finding Nemo, Andrew Stanton's Finding Nemo and Finding Dory as, as the sort of models of, of, of how you write screenplays. And they do this, the art of, of finding their characters, finding the themes of the stories, what the stakes are, why it matters. Matters, 
I was constantly surprised in this movie. That does not happen very often. And they've added women to the mix. I mean, if you think about it, Toy Story has been a very boyish enterprise from Andy to Buzz to, uh, you know, Woody. Um, and now they've got uh, Bo Peep well, as Bo this Peep, fabulous yeah. character. I mean, what's interesting is it's not so much that they added Bo Peep as they brought her they, back they, they, and, and evolved the character in a way, you know, that there's, I don't think it's a huge spoiler to say at a certain point, Bo Peep is, is sort of ownerless and, and wandering a kind of, almost like a, a post-apocalyptic kind of wasteland type of scenario because she, she has no owner. She's sort of leading the, this band of outsiders. And so it's, it's a kind of a fascinating way to, to, to turn the character into a leader instead of, you know, part of the gang. And that was she kind of cool. Showed- Woody, you know, that there's an alternate approach to life. And, and there, and it's a, it's a romance. It's a real romance. I mean, I wouldn't say that the Toy Story movies have been uh, romantic up until now. So they just throw you a bunch of hooks. It's there. It opens up some interesting mechanical questions, I suppose. Well, the animation on Bo Peep is remarkable. She's a little China doll. So what they do with her face is, is amazing. Yeah, and, no, and she's, she's voiced by Annie Potts, which is wonderful. Um, you know, she's just great. I remember Annie Potts from Corvette Summer, a movie with Mark Hamill. <laughs> yeah, no, which, well, the thing that's takes amazing, me as usual. Go ahead. The thing that's amazing about these movies, I mean, I, I thought that that some some of it was more intriguing than other. The things we've talked about really work well, and there are some parts of it where it just kind of feels like you're watching another Toy Story movie, and I almost feel like the movie you know, really has to work overtime in certain moments to push beyond that. But, but there are other times when it, when it felt a little rote to me. But the thing that I think that I appreciate watching movies like this is it, it, it reminds you how voice acting allows actors that maybe in front of the camera can't necessarily do these things to continue to do these things. I mean, the fact that, Oh yeah. That the Porky and, and, thing is, uh, is just amazing. You know? Well, yeah. Porky. I mean, voiced by Will Arnett. I mean, that's, that's really I think funny. It's, um, I think it's the guy from um, Tony Hale, Tony sorry, Hale Will Arnett. from Veep. I, I was make, yeah. making a, an arrested development. Uh, that would be very different there. actually. Yeah, that would be no, Batman. Just, I mean, the Lego Batman. Yeah, he does Lego Batman. So all these guys, <laughs> they're great as voice actors. But I'm also thinking about, you know, Tom Hanks, who has himself said he peaked in the 90s, can still do Woody in a way that doesn't, he doesn't have to alter what his voice sounds like. But he's, you know? he's become, what's really wonderful here is it's almost... All right, we talk about this all the time, the difference between television and immersive universes like the MCU and Star Wars and so forth. Well, this Toy Story has its own universe. So over four stories, um, that character has been able to deepen in a, in a remarkable way. I mean, that, he had, this is an existential crisis that he's going through. Well, who am I? And, and, and that's what Forky's going through. Who am I and what, why do I exist? And what is my role in life? And what is my mission? What, he gets very neurotic, Woody, about what, you know, what it is he's supposed to do uh, in terms of saving and helping his human charge. It's a fascinating thing that they go through. I love this movie. Well, the thing is that, that I think is a little uh, weird about the Toy Story universe is that it 
dolls have been this like creepy concept in horror movies for a long time, right? They I mean, enter that here, right? And, and but it's always been. I mean, I, I saw the not so great Child's Play reboot this week, and um, and I was thinking about how that there are creepier moments in the Toy Story movies than there are in Child's Play, and they they lean into it and they get it. And the fundamental idea of your toys come alive, alive when you're not around is actually really spooky. The it's unsettling. They have, go, they have to just kind of lie there and get fiddled around with when, they're, when their owners are around is also a little unsettling. But Forky, the thing that's, that's funny about Forky, visually I had a hard time with this character sometimes in contrast to the others because part it's of the It's primitive, joke, that's the yeah, joke. Yeah, it's a primitive thing. It's just visually, it's sort of, it, it's hard. It's harder to just like enjoy. It's brilliant, though. That That's what's so but, funny. But about I think. It. But I think what's funny is the moment that Forky comes to life, and the very idea that just by virtue of a kid putting something together and being like, "This is a toy," suddenly it has life is is really funny. And well, it's, it's hilarious because the involved. the fork the spork thinks it's a it's trash. I'm trash. I'm trash. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's it's good. It's good. I mean, it's and and it's it. They I don't want make a... people to put down animation because in my mind, seriously, you know, if you look. All right, we're about to talk about Lion King. We might as well, well move on down to Lion. Not you particularly, but in general, I would suggest even at Cannes or at, in in the creation of lists of the best movies of all time or or whatever it is, animation is a second cousin. It people don't give it. I mean, I, it, for me, Miyazaki and John Lasseter and a lot of these people have you know um, um, the the guy who uh, now I'm losing my mind brad bird these are geniuses no i think i think it's not that people don't see those people as geniuses or artists it's that there are so few animated features made on a regular basis and only some of those that actually reach a certain level of like cultural awareness that it's it's harder for animation to, to often be seen on the same level because it's you have to remember it and it has to be pushed into that conversation. That's I don't why know, Eric. I mean, this is part of what we're saying. I think that, that a lot of critics and a lot of people who write about movies give animation second-tier status. I don't there know. are about Any 20 features like a year, 20 at least, I don't that know are major top-wide releases. Yeah, I know. but I mean, And there are well, five slots every year now. They don't even worry about it. Well, you're you talking know, about it from for an the Oscars. Oscars. No, an there's, Oscar there's a lot. That, That's a lot, though. How well, many narrative features are as good? As the know. as the animated, well, as good. I don't know. I do. I mean, I think it's a sort of a middle brow like kind of mindset where you have some people who say, "I don't like animation because you watch it at a young age and you perhaps think it's for children." And yeah, it's you make not, that assumption early on. But here's the thing: original screenplays. Of course, Toy Story Four is a sequel, but there are more original screenplays created for animated films than there are for any other genre. And that's part of why they're so good and why they're so surprising and why they're willing to break through all the formulas that we get hampered by all the time. Anyway, they're not all great. They're not all as great as Pixar, but I give Pixar serious points. But the other thing is that a lot of the movies that we see now, um, the big form, the big, big movies that are made by the studios, the big temples, they're mostly animated <laughs> and people don't even give, uh, you know, they don't recognize the difference. And Lion King is yeah, the most specific example of this so far. We should um, get into that because it's, I mean, this movie is just a couple of weeks out and the hype machine just keeps getting stronger and stronger. And I was just reading 
the latest piece about, about sort of behind the scenes is in Wired. And it's a fascinating look at how they basically shot it in VR. But, but what's, what's interesting about the Wired piece is you actually get, there are photos of Favreau and com- company sitting there with these headsets. And it's the weirdest thing to watch because, yes, on some level, it's, they, 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 have, they are following a traditional filmmaking process. But in other ways, you know, it is an animated film. And so it opens up some really fascinating questions about what sort of category can you even put this into? Well, when I it's not animation to, like Toy Story. When I, mean. I spoke to, well, it, when I spoke to John Favreau, um, who knows perfectly well that this is an animated film. I mean, he, he, he knows. The difference is that they have real live actors on these um, virtual sets so that they can actually see the environment that they're in. And they have a director of photography who is moving the camera around inside this virtual reality, like it's a live action movie. So, but Disney itself wants to brand Lion King as a live action movie because it wants to make a distinction between it and the original animated Lion King. So that was 2D animation back in the day. This is is almost it is so virtually really live action looking uh, that they want to sell it as live action. Um, but in fact, it is all all every environment, every character is voiced, and and uh, and and every uh, everything is is animated. So let me ask you something. It's a question that nobody has been able to answer uh, explicitly yet. But I have a, I have some theories. Why is it in, in the many, many marketing materials we've seen for this movie and a couple of different trailers, we have not seen one animal say more than maybe a half a sentence? I'll say that the footage I saw at CinemaCon, um, it, you have to make a kind of um, leap at the beginning because it's, a, it's sort of like Babe. You know, it's one of those things where those mouths are moving weird. and it does at the beginning, but it's sort of like Avatar too. It's, it's, well, it's, it's a thing like where a... You, you have to be immersed in it and go past it and keep going with it. And then you're in it and it's like Shakespeare, you know, well, you're in it and you get it and it's okay. Well, the other thing is it almost sounds like there's a, um, there may be a term for it. It's not the uncanny valley, which is what was, you know, sort of the initial challenge with, or with Pixar and stuff is like, you know, seeing those dead eyes or whatever. But it is something where it's like y- your mind it says that seeing an, an animal's lips moving and speaking like a person is not the way things are supposed to work. So you and, have to get over it. And, yeah, I mean, and I, I think wonder, when they do marketing materials, they know that those little bits and pieces are, are off-putting. Well, I, I mean, it's like I'm, I'm sitting here at my laptop petting my cat right now. You know, and it's like my cat has kind of like a, a human face in certain ways, like they, they have expressionistic um, ways of, of, of behaving. But at the same time, it's like their eyes don't look human. And I think about like an animal's eyes and can the eyes evoke something emotional in tandem with the way that the, I mean, you saw this happen. So you tell me, like, can do they seem like they're expressing emotion or does it just look like a realistic Oh, of an Eric, I think I think animators have been expressing emotion with animals for a long time. Well, yeah, but this is not animation we've seen before. It's a different kind. This is this is this is supposed to look like a real thing, right? So like far, I've been I, all right. I'm going to put it to you this way: This is Rob Legato. It's John Favreau. It's the people who did Jungle Book. And if you think about that, you know that was all animated except for that little kid. 
So this is just the logical step up from what they already did in Jungle Book, and they've and, and the 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 way that they're using the technology is also enhanced. Um, so. Basically, um, if you believed Bagheera and and you believed Baloo, you know you're good. You know Baloo you're, didn't totally work for me. I thought that the, uh, the the best character in that movie, from my perspective, was um, the orangutan voiced by Christopher Walken. Yeah, but that was not a realistic animal. But it, but it was but he did he was just fun to watch. You know, so I'm I'm curious about that. But the Jungle Book was giving you uh, the verisimilitude of, of of a real environment. I mean, people who watched that movie uh, didn't know that all the grass, the trees, and and the hills were were animated. They they thought the animals were maybe, but hopefully they didn't think about it at all. And I think that's what Lion King is going to do here. And I think that it, it's interesting because you know someone like. Um, the people who want to write about it want to write about what we're talking about. They want to write about the technology behind it. And, and Disney in terms of selling this movie really doesn't want you to know. About right. It's that. not like tangerine shot on an iPhone. <laughs> they it's don't like, want the mechanics to be, to, it's, it's an, it's, it's a and like wired piece before, is already out. It's like they, they can sell it more broadly if they don't treat it as an animated movie, as you were saying, because like a lot of people don't want to go see an animated movie per se. Especially one they they've seen before. It's a broader so. audience. It's a and but Lion King was such a huge hit. It was the biggest animated movie in the history of movies. When at the, the brand time. still is on Broadway, and, and it's got years. and it's got the, the the music going for it on Broadway and everything. Anyway, we'll see. We'll see. It's going to be huge. Course, and by the way, is- a lot of people are talking about how terrible the box office is right now. And you know, we've seen Godzilla crash, and we've seen Shaft crash and we've seen dark phoenix crash and you know just have these plummeting uh second weekends and um meanwhile uh it looks like disney is going to continue to dominate as toy story 4 will be one of the biggest openings they've had and uh in the in the wake of uh you know end game which did really well they've also um got lion king coming I mean, so they're gonna do so, just fine so much of this is just like Obviously, guys, like the Men in Black thing, the way when you read behind the scenes on this on this movie, it was like so poorly conceived. It should have been shut down before they even started shooting it. And then like Shaft, really another one, the exact same way. I mean, it's like they're they're the the calculate. It's it's like a different category of miscalculation when it comes to franchising than what Disney is doing with these movies that already have a proven audience and you know, have many other factors that make them worth doing. So it's just a self-perpetuating thing. I mean, in other words, what you can do is you can suggest that Pixar, um, you know, delivers at a very high level. And so does Marvel just about every time. And some of, you know, not all of the live action remakes are as good as, uh, you know, uh, the Tim Burton one um, was was a bit of a disappointment, uh, the Dumbo one. Um, I but still haven't seen that. I'm I, I actually quite liked it, but I, I understand that it was a quirky and an odd kind of Burton movie, and it didn't well, connect it with like a wide audience. They, they probably should have made it more like they did David Lauer's Pete Dragon remake as a smaller 
smaller Disney reboot as opposed you to... You go with Burton and you give him the resources to make to. something big, you know. But silly. but I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is is that, is that audiences maybe, and we have we have a wonderful piece by Tom Bergerman on this subject, if you ever, one of the box office stories he did this week about what's really going on in the marketplace. And he, you know, he's saying basically that if it's, if it's a poor retread with nothing new, something terribly familiar, uh, people aren't going to go to it. And um, they're going to wait for what they know is likely to be really good. So maybe they won't go see Pets 2. They'll wait for Toy Story 4. I would do that. I would. I didn't go to Pets 2. Me it, it looked the same. Like it looked I'd like, like the other it. one. It does. I know. And and also the animation style is not very exciting in that respect. No. You know, no. I mean, they do what they do really there. well, but it looks like they didn't have enough fresh take on it to to make it a, a must see and then if, if you're gonna you know why would you go why why would you go to men in black if you can go see lion king or 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 you know why or or go or go you know it's it's not worth it's they're waiting for the good stuff is what is what i'm is what tom is saying well none of this touches on the philosophical problem i have with with remaking something like lion king as opposed to using this technology to do something we've absolutely never seen before, but that's a totally separate conversation. We'll have to have once I actually see this thing and, and can assess it. I'm looking forward to it. So, so we can talk about how great Disney's doing indefinitely and, and how it's got all these interesting things on the horizon, but certainly it's not the only one with big plans for the future. And, and this week was kind of interesting to see this item pop up about Apple's Oscar plans, which you also weighed in on and, and sort of the meetings that they're taking about, you know, producing movies that maybe a focus features level sort of production and what that's going to look like. And our pal Matt Dentler running these secret meetings to, to figure out what that slate's going to look like. But I guess the question you is... You almost had you know, a heart attack when you <laughs> thought that Matt Dentler had actually given a quote to somebody. I know, because I mean... <laughs> did not do is, it. <laughs> well, you know, it's always amusing when you see people kind of rise He's consistent. The he never talks to the I press. I mean, nobody at Apple really does. I mean, they have their process of doing that. But it's funny because, you know, we've known Matt since he was running South by Southwest in, in his 20s. And um, back then, he was very much this public figure. But when he took this job at Apple, he was really under... You know, he's not allowed to say anything. So it was funny to, you know, this. I ended up having right. dinner with him um, at one night that we sat next to each other. So he was forced to, to talk to me for, for the course of the meal. He managed to get through it without giving anything. Right. Uh, that sounds terrifying away. to him. No, no, it's fine. But um, the trick here, what's interesting about it is that, is that, and it's a question of comparing to to Amazon and Netflix because Amazon for a while there that was their strategy was to be an art house distributor looking for uh, enhanced profile branding via the Oscars, which is what the Oscars seem to be able to do for uh, independent uh, quality movies. And so I'm I I, I question um, whether whether this will be a, an effective strategy. And they haven't really uh, explained w what their release mechanism is going to be. Right, and I was actually thinking about the Amazon thing too because. You know, right now that's not necessary. If you no, if they're you, pivoting. They're pivoting have, to um, something that resembles. I mean, on the one hand, there, there's a New York Times story that Kyle Buchanan did, where he interviewed a lot of different people in the industry, including Jennifer Salky, the new head of Amazon Studios, and she, because I've I've talked to her uh, on my own as well, she is 
definitely pivoting toward um, diversity, toward more stories about women. Uh, there's a recognition that there's a lack of romantic comedies in the marketplace and that Amazon and and, Netflix. Uh, and Netflix are, are taking care of that and, and filling that void. And, uh, and, and of course, you know, what's going on in television and, and everywhere around the industry is that everybody's pivoting away from what the studios won't to pivoting toward what the studios won't do anymore as they pursue this events only strategy, believing that audiences are only going to turn up if they give them something really big. So everybody's worried about the fate of, of the smaller films and the other right. streamers are taking up the slack. I mean, I thought this was kind of strange from the outset, honestly, that, I mean, I understand buying prestige when you have deep pockets and maybe that's when Bezos wanted to win Oscars or whatever. But when you, ha it's like now you have these other questions at Amazon, like, is that a billion dollar Lord of the Rings series going to justify the price tag? The thing is like, when you have a ton of money, you could b either just buy your way into the Oscar game or you could buy your way into the bigger leagues and try to do stuff that's like, you know, on a larger scale. And so, so I feel, I, I, I'm sort of interested in, in the way in which Amazon seems to have at least come to a point where it realized that just buying your way into the Oscar game is one, not necessarily a long-term business strategy and two, inherently limiting in terms of the kinds of movies you can do and how you fit into the broader market. And the question is if Apple starts doing these Oscar things, like does is does that mean that's all they're going to do? Or are we also going to see as, you know, complementary or on another level, lots of other Apple kinds of projects that aren't necessarily fitting into that category? They have a lot of television stuff. So um, that's, we, we published on IndieWire a list of all the Apple announced projects so far, just sort of fascinating. They cover the gamut. I mean, it's all over the place. Yeah, so we're just going to have to wait and see what they yeah. do. But in the meantime, the whole question of the two hour movie and its future is very much front and center as you do see everyone in the industry sounding this rather large and loud alarm. Arm, um, right. you know, and nobody seems to have uh, a real solution for it. Yeah, I mean, there's all, and it, it's always like, is the sky falling or not? And and I find these kinds of apocalyptic sort of pronouncements to be usually a little premature because things are always shifting and changing in terms of viewer habits and other aspects of the market. But it is kind of fascinating that so many people are saying like, yes, this is the moment because you really have to get them on the same page literally as the times did in that piece to, to show just how much that's sort of the talk of the town. So. Well, I was do I'm, I'm here in Palm Springs at this um, shorts fest that I come to every uh, once in a while. And I moderated a panel yesterday with um, a bunch of managers and directors of episodic television for places like Hulu and Showtime and FX and Keshet, which is a, uh, an Israeli uh, production outfit that gets involved in a lot of the, the remakes of, of Israeli shows like Homeland and stuff. So um, I was fascinated by one thing that came out of the conversation that heart that heartened, I found heartening. And, and that is that the, we, we all have this perception that the conversation about diversity really has turned into more than a conversation that there's real hiring going on that, and they all to a person said it is it is different it has changed there are a lot of uh, like ryan murphy has this program for finding talent and nurturing them and giving them experience and there are a lot of those programs in the industry that are looking for talent 
finding them, giving them uh, some chances to learn their craft, and that on show and show uh, showrunners are now looking for people in the writers' rooms. They're looking for women directors, directors of color. They're looking to have the content be way, way more um, reflective of the real world. And when it is, they said, the shows do better. They are better. And they were all really excited about that. And that gave me a little bit of hope that, that there are uh, some changes going on. Stop the presses. People realize still that quality matters, that people do notice when that kind of thing happens. When you make something that's actually substantial, things can perform in the long term. Certainly outside of the big tentpole conversations, that seems to be the case. But the reason that the panel existed is that for short filmmakers, um, you know, who might have thought that Quibi was going to be their uh, be all and end all, the idea that that Quibi, the the Jeff Katzenberg thing, is is going to be making shorts. They're not making shorts. They're making features cut up into little 10-minute bits. And they're not bringing up lots of new filmmakers. They're going with established talent. So there it is. Yeah, yeah, that is true. So don't don't assume that just because one announcement says one thing that it's it's going to play out just that particular way. But it is certainly a a notable moment for the short form. So it's great that you're out there and exploring all that. And uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your time there next week. I know you're going to get a chance to catch up on Midsummer. And Which uh, a lot of people saw. There was this horrible thing this week where I had to pick between like a five o'clock screening of Midsummer, the very first one in L.A., which I think was at the same time you were seeing it in New York, and, and Toy Story 4, which I had missed before. And then I had yesterday uh, that I had to see also this week. It was so a juggling act. It was That's a juggling like, act. First world problems. Did you see yesterday? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll see it eventually. I'll see you yesterday. Why don't you do that we, so we can talk about that next I, week? Yeah, exactly. We'll we'll find the full the full scope of cinematic experiences from the Beatles to Swedish horror in the countryside, and basically somewhere in that equation is the state of cinema today. So <laughs> I can't wait. You sound this. you sound so world weary, Eric. Well, I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot. What can I tell you? You're so young to be so world-weary. All right. I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.